This is a third video that I've made analysing great songs. So far I have looked at The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan and Brothers in Arms by The Dire Straits. This third song though is less famous. Like, much less famous. We're talking this song has never charted and likely never will. Hopefully the ever-fickle search engine optimization gods don't curse me for choosing this song. But I do kind of feel like I should cover my Spotify Unwrapped number one song for 2021. It is, unsurprisingly, one of my favourite songs ever. The song is The Grandmore Hare, also known as The Hills of Greenmore, also known as The Hills of Grainmore. Look, it's a folk song, so obviously there are tons of alternate spellings of the title and loads of slightly different versions of the tune itself. It doesn't really matter who is singing or really how they arrange and perform the songs. I pretty much love all of them. It's specifically the Derry Farrell version that topped my Spotify though, so it's that version that I'll be talking about mostly. When she got to the heather, she tried them to shun. All the dogs, they never missed her one inch where she ran. So yeah, this is also very different to the other two songs that I've covered so far in that it was written not by a famous musician at all, but by some man or woman or woman named Anonymous. Hmm, weird name. I wonder if they're Greek. <laughs> jokes. Yeah, I know. Lame. And also not true. At least not entirely true. Or maybe not even remotely true. Confusing? Sorry. It seems, and the word seems is doing a lot of heavy lifting here, it seems like this song may have been written by someone called Owen McMahon. Weirdly, a character in the lyrics. But I've also seen it claimed that this song was written by, and I'm quoting this directly, an old woman. Old woman! in Ballyesk near Tandragee as a parody of the song The Hills of Glenswilly. So we have two competing songwriting credits here, both of which are a little questionable to be honest, as in they're from forum posts or ill-source websites. I can't really find any further information on that at all, and most places that list the song's credits simply say anonymous or leave it completely blank. Reading forum posts about the song, it seems like it's slightly more likely to have been written by this Owen McMahon than by this old woman. Old woman! But I'm also inclined to believe that maybe people are just crediting him because he's a character mentioned in the song. Honestly, I don't really know for sure, but the Raud Folk Song Index does seem to agree with me, giving no songwriter, and it lists the first recorded performer as one Frank Mills in the late 60s. So for all intents and purposes, this really is a genuine, bona fide, anonymous, traditional song, and I'm going to have to continue on that basis. Point is, then, eventually getting there, is that this is the first real folk song that I'm covering. Whoever did actually write it, all sources indicate that it was at least based on pre-existing folk songs that themselves exist in multiple versions, rather than being an entirely new composition. This is quite different then from the Bob Dylan and Dire Straits songs I've covered so far, both of which are songs written by huge, internationally famous, phenomenally wealthy rock stars and were written and released for popular music albums and both have sort of canonical recordings that are considered THE versions. So that is to say that those two songs, folksy as they may be to whatever extent, are products, whereas The Hills of Grainmore is not. This difference is important, but why? Well, it's important because it goes to the very heart of what music is, how different music genres function, and most importantly, what sets our expectation of the music we're listening to. If that's a little too abstract or philosophical, hopefully it becomes clearer as we make our way through this episode. 
Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Hopefully. So, first things first, it is a folk song, so it is rather unsurprisingly harmonically very simple. As I said earlier, I'll mainly be working from the Derry Farrell version because it's my favourite, and there are only really minor differences between all of the versions, some faster, some slower, each with slightly altered lyrics and maybe slightly different chords, but for the most part, each version follows a simple four-chord progression. Yes, those four chords. It's not just famous rock and pop songs that use them, you hear them all the time in traditional folk songs too. Unlike some of those famous pop songs that use these four chords, the trusty old 1, 4, 5 and 6, say Don't Stop Believing or No Woman No Cry, in the hills of Greenmore, the pattern changes considerably with each line of each verse rather than just repeating essentially the same pattern all the way through. So the chords in Derry Farrell's version are, line by line in each verse, 4, 1, the minor chord built off the 6th degree, 5, 1, 4, 5, 1, 4, 1, 4, 6 again, 5, 6, 4, 5. If that doesn't make much sense to you, in the key of C, the chords would be F, C, A minor, G, C, F, G, C, F, C, F, A minor, and then G, A minor, F, it's a nice chord progression, but nothing amazing in and of itself. What is interesting about this progression, though, is the way that each verse starts on a 4 chord and ends on a 5 chord, the F and the G respectively. It doesn't really resolve at any single conclusive point on the 1 chord, and in fact, in around 50% of the versions that I've listened to, the Derry Farrell version included, they don't even end on the 1 chord. They finish on a 5 chord, which in the key of C is the G. And it sounds quite natural like that, actually. It doesn't necessarily sound like a dominant chord that needs to resolve back to the 1. There's still a feeling of, I don't know, it's not tense, we sort of feel done, but we are maybe left hanging a little bit. To me, this lack of any kind of definitive dominant tonic resolution throughout the song keeps everything feeling a bit circular, so the story just sort of naturally unfolds in front of you. And hey, I admit, without any chorus or reprise, the song can feel a little bit samey throughout. Ah, heck, it is just the same thing all the way through, I admit it, harmonically at least, but this just means that you end up having to pay more attention to the lyrics, which, as I'll get onto later, is where the real brilliance lies. So metrically speaking, this tune is in 6-8, so pretty standard folk fare. Interestingly though, a few versions add an extra bar of 3-8 at the end of each line as a sort of natural pause before going on to the next line. You'll hear it in the Derry Farrell version and in Anne Briggs version too, but not in Dervishes or in Martin Simpson's. Martin Simpson's version, which is probably my second favourite version, is much slower anyway, and because it's just him and a guitar, the metre doesn't need to be, and isn't, super metrically strict anyway. Last Saturday morning, all the horns that did blow, to the green fields round Tassa, the huntsman did go. For to meet the bold sportsman from around Katie Town, for none loves the sport better than the boys from Maydown. So, in the versions where that extra bar does appear, we could think of it as just sometimes alternating bars of 6, 8, and 9, 8, or even just go ahead and call some of the lines 15, 8. It kind of doesn't matter. Though 15, 8 is obviously a little bit clumsy and silly for this kind of song. So if you like 6-8 and then 9-8 are those other moments. 
But I'm going to be honest with you, it's one of those things that doesn't really matter that much. The specifics aren't something worth getting hung up on. The general feel is 6-8, so I personally think of it still as a 6-8 song, in spite of those kind of extra 3-8 notes added on occasionally. Weird time signatures and uneven bars can be unexpectedly common in folk songs where lyrics often take precedence over the music, and so performers end up having to do whatever they can to just fit extra syllables in. And sometimes, you know, it just helps the singer breathe. Breathing is good. Take the Dubliners version of Rocky Road to Dublin, which you non-folkies may know best from Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. Originally written as a slip jig in 9-8... Most versions of this song, when sang, put an extra set of eighth note triplets at the end and beginning of each chorus. This is pretty much the same general idea as what we hear in Derry Farrell's Green More Hair. A little bit more time to breathe is always appreciated. Broadly speaking then, the Grandma Hair is pretty simple. Not as simple as they come, but not far from it either. But this is folk music, not jazz, not progressive rock, it's not fusion, it's not classical. So we were never going to have insane chord progressions or ridiculous time signature shenanigans. A large part of the point of these videos is trying to push back against the, in my opinion, less interesting musical analyses that sort of go, how does this song work? By playing these chords. End of. That's just not very interesting, and it's just not very useful. Harmonic analysis isn't going to be the best tool to look at a song like this, and getting too hung up on the specifics of the time signature changes would be a bit of a distraction. That stuff just sets the general feel here. Just like paying loads of attention to jazz lyrics, when there are lyrics in jazz, would be a little bit misled. When listening to any genre, you want to be paying attention to what that genre pays attention to. In lots of jazz, this would be the harmony. In pop, it's usually the melody. In, I don't know, post-rock, it's the atmosphere, the sounds. This is all overgeneralizing a little bit, but the point I'm getting at is that in folk, the real juicy bit is usually in the lyrics. And so this is what we should pay most attention to. So, this song tells a story. A story about a hare and the people hunting it. Because this song tells a story, it's the kind of song that can kind of be spoiled. So if you don't like spoilers and you think it might impact your enjoyment, Go listen to it first. I'll wait here. So, warning given, let's continue. The opening verses set the scene and they are sang from the point of view of the hunters. There are dogs, a hunting horn, it's set on a fine winter's morn, somebody spots the hare and they give chase. They eventually catch up to the hare and, unfortunately, the hare is killed. Although interestingly, we aren't told this explicitly. Instead, we're given the hare's final words. This is a talking hare? Eric, what an imagination! What's next? A singing, dancing mouse with his own amusement park? Obviously, this isn't meant to be taken literally as some kind of magical talking hare. It's a little bit of poetic license. The hare mourns its passing and the fact that it will no longer be able to trip through the fields. Sad. Now, in some versions, for example, the Dick Gowan and the Martin Simpson version, the hare ends the song cursing the hunter who kills him. Oh, my curse on my mind. 
Whereas in others, like Derry Farrell, Steel Ice Man, and Briggs, the curse is simply part of the narrative and is actually rephrased as blame. What I like about these lyrics is, well, damn near everything. But in general, what it does is serve to situate the song in a real, living, and very specific geography. And all of this is used to tell what is ultimately a very bittersweet story. So firstly, yes, it is realistic in spite of the aforementioned talking hair. We could take the hair's final words as a bit of metaphor, or even as a sort of projected anthropomorphism from the point of view of the hunters. Throughout the song, we are given specific details about the hunt and how it is faring. We hear about the green fields, the heather, the riverbanks, the hills, the wheat fields. We actually get a bit of a tour of the area and it sounds like kind of idyllic place, right? And it's this sort of landscape painting of the place and the portrait of the hare and the hunters that makes the song so ambivalent, so bittersweet. The narrative switches freely between the point of view of the hunters and that of the hare. So we actually get to hear of the hunt from both perspectives, the joy of the chase, the beauty of the landscape, but also the mourning and the sadness of the hare. So we by turns revel in the hunting, but also kind of want the hare to live, right? The beautiful sight of the dogs, the names of which we're told, and the music and the horns of the hunters against the cry of the hare. Whose side are we on here? Both the hunters and the hares? That's way, <laughs> whoa, that's way too complex. Seriously though, the lyrics are important. In fact, they are the star of the show. <laughs> and that's why it's so weird listening to a still very nice instrumental piano version of this song, by someone called Belinda O'Hooley that I found on Spotify. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's a little bit surplus to requirements, I feel. The song's melody is definitely good and Belinda plays it well, but we're missing our star, the lyrics. I guess we could more accurately say that it's the story and not the lyrics that is the star of the show. The lyrics themselves aren't amazing. That is to say, they're linguistically, semantically workmanlike rather than super impressive. You know, rhyming couplets with the usual sort of folksy inversions and language you'd expect, but not overly sophisticated or impactful poetically. Ultimately though, the lyrics are the story, so we can't really separate the two from each other, so yeah. Weirdly, or actually completely appropriately, my second most listened to song of 2021 on Spotify is a song called The Cregan White Hair. Yes, another folk song about a hair. In the lowlands of Cregan there lives a white hair and swift as the swallow that flies through the air. You may trap the world over but none to compare to the pride of old Cregan that funny white hair. One clear autumn morning as you will suppose. No, I'm not otherwise obsessed with hairs. I'm not a furry either, I promise. I just really like both songs and I like Derry Farrell's versions of both songs. So the similarities between these two songs, The Hills of Grainmore and The Craig and White Hair, are manifold and obvious. Both are in 6-8 with the occasional extended line added in, both are telling stories about hares, and the hares in both songs are kind of remarkable in some way. In Grenmore we have a talking hare, and the Cregan white hare is basically the best hare ever. It's fast, it's bonny, it's the pride of Cregan. 
There are, in fact, literally no other hairs to which it compares. Look, it's just a great hair, okay? But, importantly, where these two songs differ is in the ending. The Craig and White hair escapes. Well done, hair. Now, I'd love to dive into loads of details for this song as well, and talk about the differences between the two, the different little details we get in one, but not the other, the different focus of each song, but alas, I haven't the time. Was one written as an answer to the other? Do they both ultimately share some kind of common ancestor way back in time? It seems unlikely. The song's superficial similarities don't really go much deeper than generally 6-8 songs about hairs. Different melodies, they do use the same chords but in a rather different way, and the narrative details of each are different enough to make me think otherwise. Either way, they both sit together really nicely as a sort of duo of songs about hair. In one we have that tragic ending, and in the other a much happier one that actually gives you a kind of celebratory stanza at the end celebrating how great the hair is. In both, the lyrics on the one hand show a love for the sport of hunting and on the other a real appreciation for a great hair. And it's that sort of ambivalence that makes them both beautiful, an awareness of nature's beauty, but also an awareness that humans destroy and kill for fun. But it's not simply a sadistic fun, just to be clear. Here's a really interesting clip of the musician Tommy Makem explaining some of the context behind the Hills of Grainmore before a great performance of the song by Al O'Donnell. In the little town that I come from, there were a lot of huntsmen, and they weren't the popular conception of what huntsmen you would think about them being. They didn't wear red coats and wee hats and go out riding on beautiful horses. These were uh, farmers and blacksmiths and butchers and bakers who walked out with their hounds, and they didn't hunt for the fox, they hunted for a hare. And they loved their dogs and they loved the hare. They called the dogs lovely names like Rory and Charmer and things like that. And they always had a, a pet name for the hare, they called her the wee puss. And they were very fond of the hare. They never tried to kill the hare because they'd always wanted to have it there for to have a hunt the next week again. There were a number of great songs written about the hunting that went on. One of the great songs in Ireland is called The Hills of Grain Moor, which is actually the next parish to which I was raised. Here to sing the song for the Hills of Grain Moor is our special guest, Al O'Donnell. One fine winter's morning, my horn I did blow To the green fields of Caney, to hunt we did go We gathered our dogs So The Hills of Grenmore really is about that geographical and historical specificity that I mentioned earlier all about that community that hunted that hare in that place and how that pursuit involved and united the entire community. And ultimately, those specifics are actually, well, they're actually completely universal. Some version of that story has played itself out for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years in communities across the globe. And this is precisely what makes folk music great. The best folk music is able to both situate itself in a certain time or place while also hinting at something much more abstract and universal. With some notable exceptions, say Penny Lane by the Beatles, pop music doesn't really do this. So when I said earlier that The Hills of Grenmore is a real folk song, as in a product of a place and a time rather than a single person in a specific, explicitly commercial environment, and this shapes our understanding of the tune, this is precisely what I was talking about. 
It's less about the songwriter as an individual, because we know nothing about them, and more about Tassa, Grinmore, and Keedy, the places the song is set. You see, the star of a Bob Dylan song ultimately is always Bob Dylan, and that's why he's great. But the star of this song is the community and the time from which it came. If you enjoyed this video, please like and subscribe. I make a couple videos every month, and basically the better they do, the more inclined I will be to make more. Alternatively, if you hate my videos, you should probably still like and subscribe anyway.